When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Canada may be known as the friendliest country in the world, but make no mistake, it has some of the most shocking criminal cases too. Canadian True Crime takes a deep dive into some of Canada's most well-known crime stories, as well as others you probably haven't heard of, one case at a time. If you like straightforward, fact-based crime stories and don't mind them being told by an Australian living in Canada, you can find me on your favourite podcast app just by searching for Canadian True Crime. Welcome to Season 4, Episode 46 of They Walk Among Us. A podcast dedicated to UK true crime. Please listen to Season 4, Episode 45 for Part 1 of this two-part case. Listener caution is advised, as this episode contains adult themes and descriptions that some listeners may find distressing. Michael Telling had killed his wife, Monica. He hid her body in a sumhouse for five months before cutting off her head and disposing of the remains. He never disputed those facts. But after his arrest, Telling argued that he was not responsible for his actions as he suffered from an abnormality of mind. He also claimed that due to Monica's behaviour, her alcohol addiction and her alleged infidelity... This further exacerbated his mental state. It was almost as if the defence's strategy at the trial was to lay the blame squarely at the feet of the victim, making Monica so unlikable that the jury would understand why Michael Telling took the action he did. 
Alison Webber, Michael Telling's first wife, had been supporting her ex-husband throughout the trial. She testified in court that she received a visit from Monica Zumsteg following her divorce. Perched on Monica's shoulder was a cockatoo, and she was carrying a bottle of gin in her handbag. Further witnesses would testify that Telling had mentioned his wife's drinking problem and her infidelity before she died. Marion Earle, a nurse who worked in London, was friends with the defendant. She recalled meeting Telling at the famed 1930s-style luxury London hotel The Dorchester during March 1983, shortly before Telling took his wife's life. Over lunch, Marion Earle was informed by Telling that a few years earlier he had travelled to Austria to drop off some money to his wife who was on holiday there. He walked into Monica's hotel room and found her in bed with another woman. Along with Telling and his mother, Marion Earl went on holiday to Monte Carlo in July 1983, around three months after Monica had supposedly fled to America. Telling made no indication that his murdered wife's body was at the time hidden in a partially built sauna, let alone that she was dead. The witness described Telling as someone who was gentle and kind, though highly sensitive and easily hurt. He frequently sought approval and friendship. Marion Earl believed Michael Telling suffered from an inferiority complex. A love interest recalled that Michael Telling spoke about his frustrations with his wife. From the stand, Linda Blackstock told the court that she had met Telling through a shared love of CB radio. During their contact, he referred to himself first as Chief Inspector, then Snake Radio 99. Linda said that Telling had made numerous sexual advances to her in April, a month after Monica was killed. The witness was unaware that in Lambourne House, where she had stayed over the period of several days, Telling's wife's body was concealed only a short distance away. During Linda's conversations with Telling, he spoke as if his wife was still alive. Linda Blackstock told the court that Michael Telling was consumed by the failure of his marriage. Acting for the defence, George Carmen QC asked the witness, There was not a hint that Monica lay dead in the very building you were visiting. Definitely not, the witness said. He tried to make love to you and failed, Carmen asked. Yes. And that caused him a degree of humiliation? I think he felt humiliated, Linda Blackstock replied. While the witness admitted that the two had slept in the same bed, they never had sex. Telling showered Linda with gifts. This included a fox fur coat that had belonged to his second wife. He also gave away further items of Monica's, gifting a Rolex watch and several rings to his ex-wife Alison. Another witness also testified that Telling idolised Monica. Susan Bright, a woman Telling also became involved with, said that when the pair were intimate, he either physically could not perform or he simply did not want to. Telling often spoke of his wife. 
Susan Bright said he seemed obsessed with her. Further written statements were read to the court from friends of the tellings, one of whom was Frank Turner. Observing Monica frequently smoking what he believed to be grass, Turner visited the home of the tellings where he would play chess with Monica. During his time in their company, Frank Turner noticed that Telling was very quiet, almost withdrawn, with Monica more argumentative, and she was not afraid to criticise her husband in the company of others. Some of Monica's female lovers were made to stand in front of the court and recount in detail the type of relationship they had with Monica. George Carmen QC acting for the defence was relentless in his pursuit to understand what the women did. Were they drunk? Had they consumed drugs? And the conversation even covered what was described as the quality of their performance. They were asked if Monica belittled telling in front of them, to which most of the witnesses agreed she did. I saw it happen more than once, a witness said. I found it very embarrassing for him and for me too. It didn't seem to matter to her who was embarrassed. She continued as though it were a joke. She liked to wind him up and humiliate him. The defence were determined to frame the victim in a negative light and for the jury to feel some sort of sympathy for the defendant. Resolute to prove that Telling murdered his wife as he was afraid she was going to leave him, the prosecution read a statement from David Stewart who worked for a removal company that operated out of London. He received a call from a woman he believed to be Monica, who wanted a removal quote from Lambourne House to what would be her new home in California. Recalling the date to be March 14th, 1983, Just over two weeks before her death, David Stewart was told by Monica that she was no longer happy in England and spoke of a husband who had failed to live up to her expectations. The prosecution argued that Monica was afraid of what her husband might do, so hid the fact she was going to be moving out. David Stewart was told by Monica that no one from the removal company was to visit the house prior to the move and certainly not to send any written correspondence. I remember her giving strict instructions not to send written quotations to Lambourne House as she did not want it known generally that this was taking place, Stewart said. In a statement read to the court by junior counsel for the Crown Paul Dunkles, Michael Telling's stepsister Anne Kummer described him as unreliable, irresponsible and often deceitful. She had few positive words to say about her stepbrother. Anne Kummer received a visit from him on March 12th and he stayed at her home for three nights. He brought luggage with him as he was travelling abroad to Australia. All Telling did while staying there, according to the witness, was speak about his wife, how unhappy he was, and how he knew Monica was sleeping with someone else. Later that year, at the start of September, 
and visited her stepbrother at Lambourne House. She was given a tour of each room. However, when they went to the summer house, which was still being converted into a sauna, the door was locked. Telling Dismiss the need to go in, informing his stepsister that it was full of Monica's things. And besides, he said, she had run off to America. Dr. John Hamilton, the medical director at Broadmoor Hospital and also a consultant psychiatrist, recalled that during two interviews with Telling while he was being held in Exeter Prison, the defendant alleged that his wife threatened him several times, once with a dagger and another with a firearm that was discharged as a threat. Telling told the doctor that his firearms and weapons collection had grown considerably over time and said the number was close to 50. Some were expensive and highly sophisticated. He also owned a collection of daggers used by the SAS. Dr Hamilton informed the court that Telling mentioned his conviction for firearms offences. He had owned an automatic rifle and a magnum pistol. He was familiar with using a gun as he had owned a rifle when he lived in Australia to ward off kangaroos. Telling explained to the doctor he needed to protect himself and his home. He also admitted that he had been hospitalised numerous times over the years due to his diabetes. The outcome resulted in him lapsing into a coma. On several occasions, his hospitalisation was self-inflicted. During his interviews with Dr Hamilton, Telling admitted that he had struck his wife. As far as he could recall, this happened on maybe four occasions. The plot to murder Monica was only hatched a few days before she was killed, if Telling's account of the events were to be believed. The pair stayed at the Hyde Park Hotel in London, a break they hoped might bring them back together, but instead, it was the place where Telling pondered on the events that would ultimately tear them apart and lead to Monica's death. After several days of testimony and evidence, which had focused almost exclusively on Monica, the topic finally turned to Michael Telling's mental state, this being the defendant's argument against a charge of murder, which seemed to have been sidelined up until this point. Dr Hamilton discovered that Telling believed his life to be a failure. Telling saw himself as the black sheep of the family, the consultant psychiatrist believed this played some part in telling taking the action he did. While Dr. Hamilton concluded Michael Telling suffered from an abnormality of mind, this was not severe enough to impair his responsibility for the killing. During the fourth day of the trial, informing the court that Telling was not insane, the doctor was satisfied that the defendant's condition in no way bordered on insanity. If it had been an impulsive heat-of-the-moment action, the firing of the first shot might well have brought him to his senses, Dr Hamilton said. But this cocking of the rifle twice and the firing of three shots again underlines to me the cold-blooded, calculated way in which he killed her. The doctor explained that as Telling removed his wife's head, 
They suggested he was aware of his actions and did this as a way to prevent detection. He had used an air freshener to hide the smell of the body and then had the carpets cleaned. In a macabre discovery, Telling had also placed maggots generally used for fishing in Monica's skull to speed up the decomposition process. Dr. Hamilton theorised that another reason for Telling removing his wife's head was he could not be totally apart from her. He wanted a part of her near him, the doctor said. This was not a last-minute thought of his when he dumped the body, but something he had planned to do earlier by planning to take an axe and a plastic bag to put the head in. I believe he knew what he was doing was wrong. During cross-examination by the defence, George Carmen QC referred to his client as an emotional cripple, a sentiment Dr. Hamilton agreed with. Carmen asked if the doctor had made verbatim records of what Telling had said. The doctor admitted he hadn't. George Carmen QC said that Telling's stormy marriage reactivated the tension he felt in early life and his personality disorder made the taunts he received more impactful. The defence counsel went on to speak about the union between Monica and her husband and Telling's childhood and mental problems. It is very obvious, isn't it, that the mixture of this fun-seeking, drug-taking, sexually promiscuous Californian and the problem child Michael Telling was the very worst sort of mixture in a marriage. Discussing Telling, Carmen said, built into that child was a personality disorder, an emotional time bomb which might go off under stress. Dr. Hamilton again agreed with the observations made by George Carmen QC. As the prosecution ended its case, Alan Rawley QC told the jury that they should be rational, putting aside emotion or sympathy. They just needed to decide if Telling was suffering from an abnormality of mind at the time of the killing. Not that he had been insane in the past, or was insane now. the defence began their arguments during the second week of the trial. Despite testimony from a consultant psychiatrist who just so happened to be the medical director at Broadmoor Hospital, George Carmen QC was insistent that the evidence he was to present before jurors at Exeter Crown Court would paint a picture of the real Michael Telling rather than the fragmented approach offered by the prosecution. Although Telling had taken a rifle to his wife of 17 months, cut off her head and discarded her body, George Carmen QC sought to prove that there were patterns in the way Telling acted. This man's conduct as an adult can be seen to mirror his conduct as a child. You will hear echoes of his infancy in his adult behaviour, Carmen said. He went on to say that Telling suffered from rejection as a child and he suffered from rejection as a man. He was unable to cope as a child and sought attention by destructive behaviour. He was also unable to cope as a man and sought attention by destructive, antisocial behaviour. Telling did not have the same drive and desire to work for a living. 
describing the Vesti family as the byword for distinction, integrity, success and wealth. George Carmen QC suggested that Telling might resent being part of such a family, with all the money in the world being a curse as much as a blessing. The defence's argument was one of diminished responsibility and provocation. The latter related in part to Monica's actions of sexual infidelity, which at the time could be used as a defence to murder. Detailed accounts of Telling's conversations while incarcerated came from a member of the Mental Health Review Tribunal, a group who reviewed cases of individuals that have been detained under the Mental Health Act, an individual who was also a professor of forensic psychiatry at Birmingham University. During interviews, Telling spoke almost exclusively about his wife and her behaviour. He said that Monica refused to have sex with him, but would sleep with other women. Telling alleged that his wife allowed herself to be photographed by the women she slept with while she was lying naked in the bath. Professor Robert Blueglass testified that as Monica did not want to be intimate with her husband, allegedly choosing the company of women instead, quote, she must have been disturbed personally herself, with unusual and abnormal interests and predilections. The claims were confusing and did conflict with the fact that Monica had briefly become pregnant. The professor did not believe Telling had planned to commit murder. I think his emotional disturbance was probably developed over several days, but I don't believe he was considering a practical course of action. It was boiling up, and it came to a peak that morning, Professor Blueglass said. The immature characteristics that Telling exhibited would make him an incredibly difficult person to live with, the professor concluded and this would create an adverse reaction to the people in his life, producing a vicious cycle in which Telling found it difficult to cope. The professor said Telling was his own worst enemy. When asked by George Carmen QC if treatment would have improved Telling's situation, Professor Blueglass said, I think that likelihood is not very high. Telling was labelled a very disturbed individual, who acted like a child when he killed Monica, wanting to keep her and hold on to her. Another expert witness for the defence was Dr Paul Bowen, a forensic consultant who worked at Maudsley Psychiatric Hospital, where Telling had stayed. He also believed that the defendant was not responsible for his actions as Telling's personality disorder had substantially impaired his judgement at the time he took Monica's life. Dr Bowen said, The stage seems set for an implosion. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear and t-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. This episode of They Walk Among Us is brought to you in association with Centair. Ever entered a seemingly perfect space only to feel like something was missing? That's where Centair comes in. With over three decades of experience, Centair leads the scent marketing industry, scenting resorts, retail outlets, event spaces and more, partnering with major brands like Westin Hotels and Snap Fitness. Chances are you've already encountered their fragrances firsthand. And now Centair is offering you a luxury fragrance experience in the comfort of your home. Visit Centair.com to explore their online store and infuse your spaces with unforgettable scents. Centair diffusers are sleek and fill your space with vivid fragrance for up to 300 hours. And the Centair app lets you schedule your fragrance and control your intensity right from your phone. What's more, all of Centair's more than 60 fragrances are phthalate-free, cruelty-free, safe for families and EcoVad is certified sustainable. Differentiate your space with scent. Try luxury home fragrance trusted by the pros by going to centair.com and using promo code Among Us for an extra 25% off your first order. That's promo code Among Us for an extra 25% off your first order at centair.com. A childhood friend of Michael Tellings had got in touch with the defence team after reading newspaper reports about the case. Acting out of what he described as a sense of guilt, Bertram Lilly told the court that Telling was small, frail, and usually susceptible to colds and flu. He had few friends, Lilly said. He had to buy them. Teachers took a dislike to him, and beatings were not rare. Telling became visibly shaken as his former friends spoke of his childhood. Close to tears, Telling appeared as though he was reliving that period in his life. Bertram Lilly, who attended Pinehurst School in the 1950s along with Telling, testified about the bullying he had witnessed. On one occasion when Michael Telling wanted to play along with some other children, they told him to roll repeatedly through some stinging nettles if he wanted to join in. 
Bertram Lilly described that his friend looked like a giant blister after emerging from the nettles. The reaction was so severe Telling was unable to continue playing. Feeling sorry for Telling, the witness said, I felt that Michael deserved better than to be left without anybody to come to his aid at a time when he needed it. If nothing else, it shows that there was somebody else in the world that still cared. After Michael Telling was arrested in September 1983, the police searched his home. They found a letter he had written to Monica in March of 1982 when he had been staying at St Andrew's Psychiatric Hospital in Northampton. The contents revealed that Telling called Monica Honey Bun or Honey. He wrote that he was following the instructions of the staff there. He was taking lessons, karate and judo, and seemed impressed about the weight he had lost. He was down to nine stone. Telling was looking forward to watching his favourite football team, Tottenham Hotspur. He signed off the letter with, Love you, darling. I will write soon. God bless you, honey. Love you. As the evidence from both the prosecution and defence came to an end over the course of the two-week trial, the jury at Exeter Crown Court would hear closing arguments from both prosecutor Alan Rawley and defence counsel George Carman. Rawley listed the numerous steps that Michael Telling took to avoid being detected, steps the prosecutor called gruesome, used as a smokescreen to hide a murder. It was argued that Telling had considered his actions at least four days before he carried out the killing. The prosecutor said that the defendant behaved calmly and was aware enough to use his wife's bank account. He showed no signs of what he had done, not least to his first wife and the love interest that had spent time at the house where Monica's decomposing body had been hidden. An air freshener was installed, telling dismantled the gun he had used in the shooting and made everyone think that Monica had returned to America. Even when travelling to dispose of Monica's body, he explained that he was on a camping trip. Michael Telling did not deny he killed his wife, though claimed diminished responsibility. He had put forward a plea of manslaughter which the Crown had rejected. Like the plea, Prosecutor Alan Rawley QC asked the jury to reject Telling's reasoning behind the killing. They should find him guilty of murder. Defence counsel George Carmen QC pleaded with the jury not to make Telling face that one final rejection. The crucial argument in court was whether Telling was a cold-blooded and calculating killer who took gruesome measures to cover up the shooting and prevent discovery, or whether the killing was an instant decision taken under stress and resulting from his abnormality of mind. But one thing is certain, the death of Monica Telling will always be known now as the case of the headless corpse. As the judge, Mr Justice Sheldon, began his four-hour summation of the case, in his final remarks he told the jury that they faced a difficult choice. Three respected expert witnesses gave testimony, 
two for the defence and one for the prosecution. All to answer the question as to whether or not Michael Telling was responsible for his actions. This is a question which is essentially one for you, to which an answer is incapable of scientific proof and which has to be approached in a common sense way, the judge said. The jury were informed by the judge that when making their decision, they should remember that psychiatry was not a precise science. They must put aside any emotion, be it sympathy, anger, horror or disgust, and simply judge the case on the facts alone. Addressing the point that Monica was not there to dispute the comments made about her behaviour, the judge concluded, In many respects, the people affected have no opportunity of meeting the criticism made of them, as between the defendant and his victim, she is no longer alive to give her account of the story. After two and a half hours of deliberation, the jury came to a unanimous decision. As onlookers had filed into the court, Michael Telling stood unemotional, with his hands behind his back. His family, including his mother, watched on as the verdict was passed. Joyce Strong only got to know her son after he was arrested. She spent little time, more than an hour a day with him when he was young, whereas now she was by his side every day of the trial. A gasp was heard in the court, and Telling's head rocked forward though his face gave little away. For the murder of Monica Zumstick, her husband Michael Telling was found not guilty. Instead, he was guilty of manslaughter, a charge he admitted at the start of the trial. Mr Justice Sheldon said it was evident that Telling was unable to control his impulses as he was so profoundly disturbed, something that had changed little since he was young. Michael Telling was handed a life sentence and was told by the judge Mr Justice Sheldon that it was down to those responsible for his care when Telling could be released, if at all. After the verdict, counsel for the defence George Carmen QC told reporters that his client was aware of his terrible actions in taking a life. There was no excuse. He said that, This verdict is important for Michael Telling, to his son Matthew and his family. His ex-wife Alison had been supporting Telling throughout the trial. She would be visiting him while he was in prison. As news that Michael Telling had been found not guilty of murder hit the headlines, there seemed to be a wave of articles in which Monica Zumsteg's life was synthesised down to an alcoholic woman who was addicted to drugs and was sex mad. She was vilified. Monica was constantly nagging and bickering at Michael Telling, calling him the black sheep of the Vesti family. She was always trying to get him into a psychiatric hospital. The only time she was nice to him was when she wanted money, and she belittled him in front of friends. Next-door neighbour Keith Abel was distinctly unimpressed with Monica. Just about any, any subject you raise, she would sort of hold very opinionated views on, you know, and uh, uh, somewhat 
you know, unusual views on the whole. It just struck me that she was a, what I would call a, a product of free-thinking American womanhood. Some articles painted Michael Telling in a sympathetic light, implying that all he wanted was someone to love, but his wife was only after his money. Monica was labelled cruel, a swinger who took pleasure in tormenting her husband, carrying around a gun and a vibrator in her handbag. Neighbour Richard Richardson was interviewed about his experiences with Michael Telling. I... I sort of used to talk to Michael because he, well, he was a very lonely person and insecure. And I used to talk to him, sort of give him advice, tell him what to do, what not to do. And he used to start calling me dad. Uh, at times he would say, he'd come in here and say, hello, dad, what are you doing? Or, and say to Cheryl, hello, mum, you know, uh, this, this sort of thing. He started to listen to advice. And he said, I've got to go to a psychiatrist. Um, Monica wants me to go. And I said, well, are you screwy? No. Well, then, I don't go. Richardson also spoke about his observations of Monica and thoughts about his friend Michael Telling. If Monica came up here on her own, um, we'd spend hours talking about America, the police in America, the hospitals, police and hospitals over here, and, you know, things in general, and we'd have a good old chat. But if Michael happened to be here, then what you'd get is bitchiness, from Monica, she was downing Michael all the time. It was not just once in a while, but it was virtually sort of if she was here two hours with him, it would be two hours of just downing him, what I call bitching. He kept sort of going out. If he if he went out anywhere, it was he was out chasing women around, uh, that he should go to his psychiatrist all the time. I mean, she was always pushing his visits to the psychiatrist, always pushing that, you know? And, and to do that among company, isn't, isn't very nice, but th- that's the sort of thing that she would keep on and on, wouldn't, wasn't it? Um, the psychiatrist all the time. Sort of as if, as if he was completely screwy. Th- this was the way, and you, oh, he must go in um, for treatment for a week, two weeks, a month, whatever. She, want, she desperately wanted that all the time. He must be in for treatment, which was very unfair because the guy really... To my way of seeing him, he was was as sane as anybody else. I mean, if he's a bit loopy, then so am I. You know, that's the way I see him. Michael Telling spent his sentence behind the bars of a number of prisons throughout the UK, including Wormwood Scrubs in London and HMP Maidstone in Kent. He made some good progress. They found it difficult to shake old habits. One prison report written by Telling's probation officer read, I do not feel that he is a high risk to society and think that the circumstances which led up to the offence are extremely unlikely to reoccur. He does, however, still at times behave in an immature way and has a low tolerance threshold. He also finds difficulty in coping with frustration. He has, however, made considerable progress at HMP Maidstone, and I would suggest that he could be safely transferred to open conditions where his behaviour could be further monitored prior to release. A caseworker also wrote about Telling and said, 
This inmate, in my opinion, is no risk to the public. I would recommend his release due to his medical problems because it would be hard to find a Category D or pre-release employment scheme hostel which could cater for his medical needs. In view of these circumstances, I would recommend a release date for him to rejoin society. Michael Telling was reportedly released 10 years after his conviction. He settled in Perth, Western Australia, with a new social circle who were unaware of his past. Only a few months after his release in January 1994, he purchased a property in Ross Moyne, believed to be valued at around three quarters of a million Australian dollars. He did not stand out. Not even his best friends knew much about him, assuming him to be a British aristocrat. Few knew of his connection to the Vesti family. Telling continued collecting cars, often watching games and donating to the Western Australian Cricket Association. He lived a quiet life and kept himself to himself. Michael Telling died in Perth at the end of 2009. In 1992, author and journalist Robert Lindsay released a book titled Irresistible Impulse that chronicled the lives of Monica Zumsteg and Michael Telling and Monica's eventual death. When the book was released and reviewed by the press, Monica's behaviour was yet further examined with her motivations placed under the microscope. Writing for the New York Times journalist Wendy Kaminer, addressed the points raised in the book that Monica and Michael Telling were drawn to each other because of their past life experience. Observing Monica's choices, Kamina wrote, She was not doomed by her dysfunctional family. She was doomed by popular psychology, when a little common sense would have saved her. It seemed as though Monica Zumsteg was still being blamed for her own murder nearly a decade on. So where are we now? Just over two and a half decades after Monica's body was found, the law surrounding the partial defence of provocation was changed. When someone takes a life intending to kill the deceased, there are several potential partial defences that can be used. They include, but are not exclusive to, diminished responsibility and provocation. If they are successfully argued, this would mean the charge of murder would be reduced to voluntary manslaughter. However, after a groundswell of public support and campaigning by current MP Harriet Harman to end victim blaming and offer a defence to a spouse or partner who had suffered continual domestic violence over a period of time, the partial defence of provocation was changed under the Coroners and Justice Act 2009. This meant that sexual infidelity was not a qualifying trigger and was replaced by a new defence of loss of control caused by fear of serious violence. Harriet Harman said the change would, quote, end the injustice of women being killed by their husband 
and the injustice of them being blamed. If this change had been action before Monica Zumsteg was murdered, it might not have made a difference to the outcome of the trial, as part of the successful argument made by Michael Telling's defence counsel was that his client was not responsible for his actions due to an abnormality of mind. However, the amendments to the law had a fundamental change to how murder victims were treated and the way murderers were convicted. After Monica Zumsteg's death, her father was distraught with the way in which his daughter had been portrayed throughout the trial and in the media. He told a reporter for the Press Association, All these claims were totally untrue. They have taken little things and half-truths and exaggerated them. It seems to me a pretty crummy way to play the game. The very poorest of tastes. Monica was a woman of great intelligence, kind, and full of sensitivity. Thank you for listening, and special thanks to our Patreon supporters. Information on this episode can be found in the show notes or on our website, theywalkamonguspodcast.com. It's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.